With five times more pharmacies than McDonald's, and with 50% of drug spend this year projected to be for specialty drugs, can we use data and analytics to drill down on outcomes and help bend that trend? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement that helps small and mid-market companies escape the fully insured marketplace and delivers stability, control, and savings without watering down employees' benefits or increasing their premium share. If you have clients in the educational institution or the engineering vertical, go to our website at CaptivatedHealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're speaking to Promote John. Promote is the CEO at Vivio Health, and they're focused on using outcomes to bend the specialty drug cost curve and they're using data and analytics. Now, we've talked in different contexts on the podcast before about data and about analytics and, and how to bring them to bear in broader claims costs, but Promote and his company are very focused in the drug area, and he was nice enough to spend some time with us and, and share his expertise with all of you. So with that, welcome, Promote. Thank you, David. Thank you very much for having me on the program today. So let's start with the big elephant in the room question. Why do we have the highest drug prices in, I guess, the universe here in the United States? Well, as a former CEO of Pfizer, Jeff Kindler famously said, and he was honest, you know, people asked him the question where there's a common misconception of it's because Americans pay for all of the costs of drug research. And he said, no, that has nothing to do with it. He said, the only reason Americans pay the highest prices in the world is just because the U.S. is the only unregulated market in the world. So imagine that we're a country that believes in the free market, but there is only one country that is free on drug pricing, and that's us. So as a result, we have no price controls, explicit or implicit, and we've made the problem even worse because if you think about how insurance works in this country, what we've done is we've regulated the demand side of a problem, whereas you look in most industries, it's the supply side that's regulated. And so what we've said is, hey, you've got to provide coverage. You've got to pay for all of these things. But there's no restriction on how much the person who's or the company that's selling you the good or service prices it at. So it's it's the perfect single-sided market if you're a supplier. Well, I mean, I just saw we're, we're recording this on October 26th. And this morning I saw Secretary Azar on TV talking about some initiatives that they were using to try to bring drug prices down on the Medicare side. And yesterday, the president, I think it was yesterday, the president signed some new regulations about drug costs. And is any of that going to help commercial patients anytime soon? Unlikely. And the reason for that is that, you know, today, if you think about it, again, it's a it's an artificial divide because Medicare does regulate drug pricing in many ways. But the commercial sector is unregulated and there is no market. So you've got the worst of all worlds. Neither is there any regulation, nor is there the ability, like in a normal market, for us to say no to something. 
And the only way a market functions is when we can say no to something. We can say no to going to Barnes and Noble and say yes to going to Amazon, for example, when they started selling books online. But in, in today's market, the problem is that it's a one-sided market in which the only thing we can say no to is which, which insurance coverage we buy, not the question of what they're forced to pay for as a result of buying that insurance coverage, which is a one-sided market. So if Medicare, which is arguably 50% or more of the overall medical spend at this point in the country, is able to regulate drug prices, but the commercial marketplace isn't, do we just continue to have some of what Uwe Reinhardt used to talk about as hydraulic medical economics? So some of the pricing that is not paid by Medicare gets pushed over and transferred into the commercial marketplace. Is that exacerbating the problem? Yeah, a few years ago, there was a Tom, you know, Thomson Reuters and some of the other companies like that in that space used to keep track of sort of margins in healthcare. And uh, you know, a few years ago, I saw an interesting report that was talking about the fact that even in the public sector, where there is an assumption that the margin is actually negative, that the margin is slightly positive in the public sector and in the commercial sector, and that this was a few points, and in the commercial sector, at that point of time, the margin was 30 or 40 points, along with single-digit points on the public side. And so clearly, what we're seeing is we can squeeze the balloon. So in some ways, the politicians in Washington look good because they're able to squeeze, and they've only got single-digit margins on overall healthcare costs from, a, from the perspective of margin on the provider side. But on the commercial sector, that margin is 30 to 40 percent. And there's nothing to stop, prevent that at this point. I mean, think about how crazy this is. Today, if you look at sort of some of the mergers and other things going on, the biggest issue that, that one of the hurdles they face is state insurance regulators. Think about the craziness of this. We regulate the people who pay for things, but we don't regulate the people who sell things. We don't have state provider regulators or supplier regulators. We've only got regulation on the people who have to or forced to pay for things, which makes absolutely no sense in the world. So you don't you don't see the Amazon group that they formed or the Aetna CVS and et cetera mergers really having a major impact? I think that they could have a major impact. So if you're asking the question of, hey, could they have a major impact? The answer to that is yes, clearly they could. But, you know, based on what they've been describing so far and what they're talking about, is it likely that there's going to be a major impact? And that's where I would say the answer to that seems questionable at best, because we haven't seen too much really dealing with the ultimate market dynamics problem in the markets themselves. And unless they're willing to break some China, the likelihood of anything changing is pretty low. I mean, take, for example, the whole question of, of all the places that Amazon could disrupt. What's the easiest? Drugs, right? Because drugs are a virtualizable commodity. Geography is not important. You can mail order, right? And then you've got a very small percentage of drugs that need to be, you know, delivered on an acute basis. If you need amoxicillin, for example, or something like that. And when you look at that, you realize that, well, even for those things, you know, there are a lot of on-demand type services and things where you could even deliver those without having as many pharmacies as we do. Just a little stat for you. We have, I think, you know, we have almost five times as many pharmacies in the U.S. as McDonald's. And so when you look at all those from a distribution perspective, we have an extremely inefficient distribution system. And on top of that, we've got the people who regulate these industries. Think about state pharmacy boards 
are people who are economically interested in the in the in the laws themselves. And so you don't have disinterested parties that are making, for example, the laws. You've got people who have an economic interest in this case, who typically make laws that regulate these industries. And so even for a barrier for someone like Amazon tends to be a lot of the existing incumbent industries and the barriers they place, right? So let's say that Amazon gets around all those things. Take, for example, prescription drugs in the U.S. In 2015, IMS announced that 90% of scripts sold in the U.S. were generic. And and at that point, the prediction was that by 2018, this year, that about 50% of our drug spend would be specialty drugs. And specialty drugs were, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, they were like 5% of our spend. They were small. No one even knew what a specialty drug was. And now we've got 60 minutes talking about specialty drugs suddenly. As in this year, they had had an episode talking about a specialty drug uh, three or four months ago. And so when you look backwards at that, you realize that it's an interesting thing that's occurred. Here's the crazy part of it. If you took that 90% of drugs and, and you looked at how many people, how much does that drug cost, how much do those drugs cost today? If you took single source generics out, which are really brand, it's, it's roughly 85% of scripts account for 15% of our drug spend. One five. Okay. That's with the inefficient distribution system. If Amazon were to get into this space or if the government wanted to get into this space, they could give away almost nine out of 10 drugs to every American. And it would cost us about 7% of what we're paying for drugs overall to give away nine out of 10 scripts to every American. Well, and, and coming down the pike are genetically engineered drugs, which are going to further exacerbate the problem, right? I, you know, absolutely. Well, you know, that's an interesting question because as you're seeing a lot of the new CAR T therapies and other things that are, that are actually based on your own genetics, for example, these drugs that are coming to call them designer drugs, targeting cancer and other things where, you know, frankly, in, in certain cases, they've, proven to be extremely effective, right? So this is a good thing from a new therapy coming to market perspective. You know, there's no question about that. But I think that, you know, part of the issue ends up being what's our model and what's our IP model? What are we willing to pay for these things? What should we pay for these things? And then who should own the rights on this? And you'll, you'll find if you go back and look at every one of these therapies, whether it's new or the old therapies, it doesn't really matter. A large amount of those therapies were developed using basic fundamental research. It was funded by the U.S. taxpayers and often trials and other things that were, in fact, also funded by the U.S. taxpayers. And I don't know of any other country that allows the taxpayers to fund the research, most of the research, and then somebody else owns a patent, for example, on a lot of the research, basic research that was done by on the, on the U.S. taxpayers' dime. And so certainly we've got some issues, not only, you know, with the the cost, but also the model itself on who's paying for this. And, you know, if we're paying for it, then who should own the IP? David, you know, an interesting question, because we started off the, the interview with the question about, hey, do Americans pay, you know, to subsidize the cost of research? Let's assume that that, w- that was in fact true. Well, then one could make a very strong argument that if Americans subsidize it, then they should own the IP rights associated with what they subsidize, right? Not drug manufacturers or commercial companies at that point. So even that notion that we should be okay and feel good, even if that were true, right? Points to the fact that, well, that's fine. Then we should own the IP if we're paying for it. 
And now, a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single-source solution for your clients and prospects in the education and engineering verticals. The founders of Captivated Health have 35 years' experience working with healthcare and benefit clients, and over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems mid-market clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing healthcare costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace. Until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems and does so with virtually no disruption to employees while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to your education and engineering clients that you advise. To learn more about Captivated Health solution, go to our website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on our logo on the Shift Shapers website. How big a problem or how big a part of the solution are PBMs? PBMs largely, arguably, are, are, are at this point in time part of the problem. And they're part of the problem in two ways. One is that we ultimately have a travel agent model. And if you were to go back and ask, well, why don't we use travel agents? It was really simple. It was because we discovered that along the way, the travel agents didn't serve our best interest. When prices went up, they made more money. And the information they gave us wasn't necessarily what's best for us. It was often what's best for them. And you have a very similar scenario in which now you've got intermediaries who have non-transparent business models. And those business models are tied to the fact that they make more money when drug costs go up. So you've got an economic problem ultimately where it's not the PBM that's the problem because at some point you need somebody to process transactions, somebody to be, you know, to help you collect data, all of those things that are necessary, right? You know, as part of any sort of financial process because it's, we got rid of travel agents, but then, you know, we have other consolidator sites and other things. It's just that they make money differently, right? And so in this case, we have a similar scenario in which it's not the PBM that's the problem per se, or some of the services that are being offered. It's the economic underlying models, which are inflationary by their very nature. And as a result, anytime you have a supplier or intermediary who makes money or more money when the cost of goods goes up, well, that's not in your best interest as a buyer. And as a result, that's one of the biggest problems. The second is that the assumption that we often make is that buying, you know, that aggregating purchase and, and exerting pressure on the manufacturer side is what PBMs do. And that's unfortunately a misconception that both the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice have too. If you've been watching sort of the ESI Medco merger and now the larger Aetna CVS merger, et cetera, you'll see the same sorts of dynamics going on in sort of the public understanding of what's going on. Unfortunately, the dynamics are reversed. This is, these are pay to play agreements. And if you want to think about a rebate, a rebate isn't about a rebate. A rebate is actually think of it as a pay to play arrangement in which a supplier can now pay for shelf space positioning. So it's no different than going to a supermarket and you see, you know, the cereal that's in eye level is the one that's paying them the most for positioning. And that's what's happening, which is exactly the opposite dynamic of what we think is happening. So ultimately, the issue with them is really the underlying business models that are contributing to sort of the high costs. And then lastly, what does that result in? It results in the fact that we now shield competition on the provider or supplier side. Remember, our free market assumes 
that we have suppliers who are competing. Take, for example, last year when AbbVie came out with a hep C drug, there was literally a quarter of the cost of Harvoni from Gilead. And not only was it a quarter of the cost, it worked across many more genotypes. And it only required, you know, for 80% of the population, an eight-week course of therapy versus 12. I mean, there's not an axis that you can look at and say, Harvoni is a better drug, right? Except in maybe some very isolated cases. There may be a few patients who still need it, which is okay. But for the majority of people, AbbVie was a significantly, I mean, the drug from AbbVie, Maverick, was a significantly better drug. But what happened? Most of the PBMs didn't put it on their formulary, even though the net cost, even even net of rebate was was about 50%, 40% of what the cost of Harmony was. And so as a result, what happens? We prevent the market from functioning because we've got a new entrant in the market who's come up with a significantly better lower cost drug, and it never sees the light of day because the PBMs prevent competition in the market from occurring. So what you're focused on is using data and analytics to try to bend this curve. How can we do that before this incredibly steep hockey stick curve of pharmacy cost eats plans alive? You know, really good question. I think that there are two dimensions to this. There's the, there's the obvious dimension that we all see, which is, hey, the cost of these things is exponentially rising. Why is that occurring, right? The question that we're not asking is a much more important question is, what does it actually do? And let me give you an example. Today, the way our models work, think of PBM contracting models, think of you know RFP processes, think of all of these things that we go through. They all focus on what the discount is that we get on the drug. Okay, So imagine that you're buying a new specialty drug and it costs $100,000 know, annually for that drug. Today, what we do is we sit and we argue about whether that discount, the net discount on that is 19% or is it 20%. The problem is that we're missing the bigger question, which is, does the drug actually work for the person who's on it? Because if that isn't true, then we've lost 80% every time we hit a drug that doesn't work for a person. Or in this case, 100% of the cost of the drug. Often, you know, we've asked people this really simple question. If we bought a $100,000 drug and put it on the shelf, or if we bought a $100,000 drug and we flushed it down the toilet, or we bought a $100,000 drug and it didn't work for the patient who's on it, what's the difference amongst those three scenarios? For some reason, we think they're all different, but they're identical because the issue isn't what did the drug cost? It's what did you get in return? And part of the problem of why drug prices are escalating so much is that no one seems to be asking the question of, what am I getting for the $100,000 I'm paying? As you might know, like, for example, there are some organizations that are publicly starting to ask some of these questions. For example, ICER, I-C-E-R. ICER is one of the organizations that's out there asking this question and doing analysis around the, what do these drugs actually do? How much do they extend life if they're life extension drugs? How much do they improve quality of life? All of the questions that we should be asking that for some reason we're not asking. We routinely see million-dollar drugs in which there's no evidence at all that it does anything in improving quality of life or life extension for the person who's on it. And 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 often it has no data at all to even show that it was even tested. We see use of these drugs broadly, even though the trials, et cetera, are very narrow. And I think fundamentally this misconception comes from two things. 
One is because we assume, make assumptions about what the FDA does. So one of the misconceptions is if the FDA has approved a drug, the drug works. Unfortunately, we're not asking the question of what does the drug works actually mean, or does the FDA actually regulate efficacy or effectiveness of a drug? And, and the answer to that is no. Their primary focus is on safety. Not only that, the term that we always talk about efficacy as being important, one could argue that it's actually less important. The term we should be asking about is effectiveness. Efficacy refers to the population that responds. What that means is that if, 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 if you put somebody on a drug or a population on a drug, what percentage of people will hit an endpoint? If you have a life-saving drug and it's 10% and it's going to save somebody's life, most of us would argue that it's worth making a bet on a 1 out of 10 bet. Now, we could argue that economically, we shouldn't have to pay for the 9 out of 10 you know, that don't work, if you will. And the, that's a drug manufacturer's problem. But at least we could argue that, hey, if we had a 1 out of 10 chance on someone who's 35 you know, making it, then we could argue that that would be worth it. But the question we're asking is, well, what's the end point that we're not asking? Are we, are we just measuring that someone got a 30 days of life extra? Or are we saying that, hey, this cured person? And that's the part that we, for some reason, aren't asking the question of what is the end point or what does this drug actually do? And if we want to curb drug costs, the first way we can drug co- curb it is by not paying for drugs that really don't improve quality of life or life expectancy for people. Is, is this an argument for pharmacogenetic testing? I mean, I know the cost of that testing has dropped precipitously and it's starting to be talked about, but from where I sit, it's not being broadly talked about. Are you hearing more about it? You know, there's a, there, are, there is a lot of discussion about it. The bigger problem associated with it isn't conceptually, is it a good idea? It's a great idea. The problem that we have sort of practically speaking is that there are very few, especially in the specialty space, very few drugs for which we have any, for example, pharmacogenetic data. And often there, there are like a, almost a handful of drugs, for example, in the oncology space where we do have pharmacogenetic data. And so in, in those cases, what we really find is that those cases also weren't that a drug manufacturer decided, let us figure out who this works for the best. In almost every one of those cases, it was a salvage of a failed drug trial in which they discovered that, hey, at least for this very small population identified by this gene SNP, we can get a response that's better than nothing. And so right now, our problem isn't conceptually, is it a good idea? It's this very little data associated with you know, any sort of genetic information that allows us to discriminate a patient and what the potential effectiveness would be or efficacy in a population would be. Interesting. Interesting. We've got about a minute or two left. So let me ask you, what do you see the future? Where do you see data and analytics driving and, and how do you feel that, that it will help ameliorate some of the costs? Well, you know, if you look at every industry that's been disrupted, the reason every industry has been disrupted is that because the buyers in an industry have more information than sellers do, or that we flip the asymmetry of information. Look at every other non-healthcare market. That's what we've seen. Buyers, for the first time, have more information than sellers do. As a result, that changes the ultimate dynamics of who the suppliers are in these industries. Today in healthcare, it's the sellers who have all the information. They protect the information. They try to take ownership of a patient's data. In the case of drug trials and other things, you know, it's, it's very difficult getting any of the underlying data, even though we're forced to pay for it. We have very little data. And it's almost always high-level data. Now, obviously, we don't necessarily even use the high-level data that's out there, but the fact that we don't have access to the underlying data. And so when you step backwards and ask, how are we going to change this? If we have a hope of changing it, 
it's going to come from one of two things. One is we're going to regulate it, right? As unfortunate as that may sound, I mean, and as, and as inefficient as, as most of us would argue that that is, that's going to be one mechanism to deal with the problem. But if we're going to have a market mechanism to solve this problem, then ultimately it's going to be because the buyers of these services and products have more information for the first time than sellers do. And if we don't flip that asymmetry of information, then there's no way that buyers can actually negotiate on things like saying, hey, this isn't worth it. We're not going to pay this price because it doesn't do anything. And we know. So that would be the first thing is that asymmetry of information shifting to the buyers. Well, a great place to end our conversation, but we do hope you'll come back and, and chat further. Promote John, CEO at Vivio Health. Promote, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience. Hey, thank you very much again for having me on the show. And thank you. Look forward to coming back at some point and chatting again. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. Thank you.